In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth." Before we climb what has been called, with the book of Romans, the Mount Everest of the New Testament, let's go to our Father in prayer. Father, we pray that you would show us vistas of your glory that we have never seen. And we pray that the vistas that we have seen would be made more clear and more beautiful and more marvelous to us for our time together in the book of John. Help us to see your glory in the person of your Son. Give us life in his name, for he is the resurrection and the life. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, there are many takes and have always been many takes on the identity of Jesus Christ. Everyone seems to care. Some care and don't like him. But among those who care and do like him, there are still many takes on the identity of Jesus Christ. There's Jesus the social worker helping us out on hard times. Jesus the genie helping us get what we want. Jesus the therapist helping us cope. The lawgiver helping us know how to be good. The magic eight ball helping us know exactly what to do next. Jesus, the celebrity, helping us get excited. Jesus, the parenting supplement, helping us keep our kids in line and see that they grow up and are successful. Jesus, the celestial treasure chest, helping us prosper with money, bigger homes, and the promotion we've always wanted, and certainly health. And then there's Jesus, the teacher, helping us know exactly what and exactly how to think. Well, the trouble is, I don't know about you, but none of these Jesuses make me mad. None of them get under my skin. None of them intimidate me. But whatever Jesus talked about himself, they were people who got upset. The exchanges went something like this. They asked Jesus a question. Jesus answered the question. They picked up stones to kill him or arrest him. Or they didn't because they were afraid they'd get mobbed. He was controversial. He was not offering help. He was telling them who he was. We might not describe Jesus in the ways I've listed if put on the spot with words. But our lives bear this out. How we talk to our children, our closest companions, and to our newest neighbors about Jesus Christ and God bear out, bear witness to the problem that we think we have and the Christ that we think we need. And even if we think that Jesus is of no consequence, or even a scam, that too bears witness to the problem we think we have, and the Christ at least, or the solution at least, we think we don't need. Put simply, we are dead, we are under God's wrath, and there is nothing we can do about it. That is our problem. And with our conception of our problem and our need for Christ, uh, whichever Christ we think we need, we're totally sincere about it. It's actually part of our nature. It's part of our problem being dead to deny the nature of our real problem. There's a great book on addictions by the title Banquet in the Grave. Isn't that true? The sin that promised joy and life led me to the grave we sung this morning. We walk around blind and in the dark and for as much pain as we know stumbling about, we would actually have it no other way. Many of our greatest sadnesses and frustrations come from us doing precisely the things we want to do. We love the flesh and so we eat ourselves alive. We do this at an individual level. You can see this in our own individual lives and at a societal, cultural level. We love the darkness and run from the light. We love our blindness because we know if we could see ourselves in the mirror, we just might throw up. And so we stay in the dark and we stay in denial. We are dead. We are under God's wrath and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, turn with me to John 20, 30 through 31. 
This will be our text this morning. This is an overview of the book of John. Uh, If you're new to DSC, our whole church is listening through the New Testament in 90 days. And today starts John, John chapter 1 through 3, as we're listening for today. If you want to learn more about that, information is available on the website with links to audio. Well, this here is John's specific statement of his purpose. He makes it at the end of the book, second to the last chapter, and it'll help to focus our travel through the book of John. 20, 30 through 31, John writes, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. You'll notice that John says he wrote specific things down. Let's unpack this verse. He wrote specific things down. He could have written many things. In chapter 21, he says that the world itself could not contain the books where everything Jesus did and said written down. And he was there for much of it. What John organized, he wrote in two halves. The first half, chapter 1 through 12, he performs many signs. And he does so to manifest his glory that people would believe. Here's how John uh, provides commentary after, uh, at the start of that first section after his first sign. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed. The second half of the book, 13 through 21, Jesus does a single sign. He dies and raises from the grave. That's his sign. And his father glorifies him as he glorifies his father. Now let's look closely at the purpose part of our text this morning. It says three parts. First, John writes that we might believe. He wants us to do something, but that is it. He wants us to believe. Secondly, he wants to believe us to believe something specific about Jesus, namely that he is the Christ and the Son of God. Christ is the Greek term for Messiah, the long-promised one. Way back in Genesis 3.15, after we fall into sin, God does promise graciously that he will send a son of the woman to crush the serpent's head, turn back the curse, and undo the problem of death. We find out as the Old Testament unfolds, this will be a son of Abraham and then a son of David. It will be David's greater son who sits on his throne and reigns forever. We know that much and we know more as the Old Testament unfolds. We'll find out this morning. But John is saying, this is him. I'm writing that you would believe this is the long-promised Christ. And if we believe in Jesus Christ, we actually believe certain things about him. His name is a proposition. His last name, Christ, is a doctrinal statement. And if Christ indicates his title and his relationship to us, his saving relationship to us, then Son of God indicates his relationship to the Father which qualifies him to be our Christ. The Pharisees knew what it meant, calling God his Father as he did constantly as blasphemy. He was claiming the status of God. Notice third, that believing this about Jesus results in life in his name. It's eternal life John's talking about. And that kind of eternal life, this kind of life, begins when we believe. We are dead, we are under God's wrath, and there's nothing we can do about it. But what is impossible for us is possible with God. And this book is about what God has done. Jesus came in order that we might believe he is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And John wrote this book that we might believe Christ is the Son of God and have life in his name. And we meet this morning that we might believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have life in his name. And of course, When John writes this purpose statement, he assumes we've read the whole book. So we're going to explore what John means in this statement by exploring what he specifically decided to write down. And what he writes, he writes that men and women may believe it has an evangelistic purpose, but no less is it for us who are exploring the glories of Christ for all of our lives. When we step onto the mountain of the Christian life, the Mount Everest, we explore God's glory for the rest of our lives So let's do some climbing together this morning. I want to show you the different ways Jesus told us to believe in him, the different ways he talked about himself as the Christ, and the different ways he talked about life in his name. Who is this Jesus? Who is he to us? What does it mean when we say, what do we mean when we say, all I have is Christ? Jesus is my life. 
We'll find out in the book of John. So what does it mean to believe Jesus in Jesus Christ? Let's consider seven different answers. First, to believe in Jesus Christ is to receive the word made flesh. John 1 opens this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Well, John was fully acquainted with Jesus' humanity. There are many ways John could have begun his letter. We know he was very close to Jesus. All throughout the Gospel of John, he makes reference to the disciple whom Jesus loved. Everyone else gets a name. Who's that? Well, it's him. He tells us. At the end of the whole, whole book of John, he says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. It's like one of those movies that has a narrator, and at the end you realize, oh, he's talking about himself. He's a character in this story. It's about his childhood or whatever. I think Stand By Me was one of those. Well, John was with Jesus pretty much for everything the other three gospel writers wrote about. They talked together. They walked together. They ate together, got hungry together, rained on together. If they shaved their beards, they shaved their beards together. They did everything human people will do together that are close companions, like two guys could be. So John was with Jesus for pretty much everything that the other gospel writers wrote about. We also know that John took care of Jesus' mother after his death. Jesus tells him to do so from the cross. Do you think they talked about Jesus? Do you think John was privy to all kinds of neat stories and background before Jesus' his ministry began? The other gospel writers start with Jesus' birth, Mark with his ministry. John starts in eternity past. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, by calling Jesus the Word, John is using a familiar term in his day. Greeks would know it. But this really is perfectly ambiguous without the first verses of the first book of the Bible, where God writes in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, Let there be light. God was in the beginning... And he created everything that is with his word. Jesus is that word. He was in the beginning with God, and he was God. That's what John's saying. You say, check, I know Jesus is God. That's basic theology. Or, that's not that interesting, but I know it. It may be something we pick up on early because the Bible is so clear about it, the New Testament especially. But it is not unastounding. And if it does not astound us, maybe we have not quite gotten it for what it means. Everything. Jesus made everything. I usually think of the stars and the sky and the sun and kind of the big creation things. But those are not boring, but they are common. Jesus made everything in that boring field across the street. That field is a fascinating place if you're going to walk over there. Walk along the homes to the east, and jackrabbits will pop up every few seconds. I was walking, and uh, I counted as many as ten as I was walking uh, toward the east. Then I headed toward the road, and uh, I had ten jackrabbits in the corner. God made every jackrabbit over there in that field. He made all the little green bushes. He made all the little brown bushes. He made the... uh, He made... I think I put it the other way the first service, and there was no laugh, and it wasn't meant to be a joke, but I get it. Um, he, made, he, made, uh, he made the red ants in their hills. Ten steps later, he made the small brown ants in their hills. Ten step later, steps later, he made the big black ants in their hills. Clint Moore, our missions director, says that as a boy, he would scoop up the ants from one hill and take them to another and see what happens. He suggested I do the same. Not done it yet. He made all the little yellow flowers and he made all the little purple flowers over there in that boring field where there is no Walmart. (laughs) 
We recently moved here, and that's the story, right? Uh, Talk about the field and the balloons, and that always comes up. Well, Jesus is that word that created everything. And just in case the language of John 1 is a little confusing at first, Paul says this in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That is Jesus Christ, the eternal word, this eternal word that made everything, John says, became flesh. Flesh. In Christ, God came down here, kicked around inside a wet, sloshy womb, went through the birth canal, and came out in an animal's bed, screaming and needing to be held. He was a human being, and he made the world. You see, our real problem is that ever since Adam rejected God's word, we've been banished from the presence of God. Jesus comes in the flesh, and God dwells among us. The word dwelt among us, 114 says. And that word dwelt is very interesting. It's the word tabernacle. You'll know in the Old Testament, Moses and the people of God were told to build a tabernacle where God would dwell with his people as they moved around. And as they settled in Jerusalem, they were told to build a temple where God would dwell with his people. No surprise, in the next chapter, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, he goes to the temple, cleans it out, and says he is the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, he says in 2.19. And John provides insider Holy Spirit post-resurrection interpretation. He was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture. God the Son comes down as the long-promised Christ, the Word made flesh, the true temple who reveals God. That's why John says, no one has ever seen God. He has made him known. As Jesus says over and over, he reveals the Father's authority, his will, his glory. He is God, the image of the invisible God. So how did people respond to God coming down? Well, we get that in our first chapter as well, verse 10 and following. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So some did not receive him, which is an understatement. But others did receive him and believed in his name, the text says. So what's up with this word receive? Is this to receive Jesus into our heart? We don't find that expression in the Bible. No, it's about our hearts becoming receptive to who Jesus is. John clarifies in 543, he says, I have come in my Father's name, that, and you do not receive me. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God? To receive Jesus for who he is, requires that we let go of whatever we've been cherishing in his place, including our own glory. The word does not show up in John, but this is called repentance. Receiving Jesus as the word made flesh is what saving faith does. What are you cherishing in your heart this morning? What could God take away from you that would make you reject Christ or keep you from coming to Christ where it threatened It is happier for us to behold his glory than to receive glory for ourselves. To those receive him who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that, my friends, is eternal life. And just as the Father sent him into the world, Christ sends us into the world to spread his glory, the glory of his presence everywhere through the preaching of the gospel. So to believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe the word made flesh, to receive the word made flesh. Well, it's also to come to the true light. We see that theme show up in that first chapter again as well. John 1, 4, and 5 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is another theme that follows from Genesis 1, where we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And God said, 
let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good and separated the light from the darkness, and we have day and night. God put it together that way. One to the formless dark void, God sent light. He did this through Christ at the creation of the world, and he did it when he sent Christ into the world. And he does it now when he sends the light of Christ into our hearts. Well, in John 9, we have a very familiar story of Jesus healing a blind man. It's a sign. We know that Jesus' signs point to him, which is what signs do. Jesus' signs interpret him. And in John 9, 1 through 7, we read this account. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Verse 6 is our key here. Having said these things, he spat on the ground. It's the key to understanding the sign. So basically, after saying, I'm the light of the world, Jesus heals a blind man. Listen to Isaiah 42, 1 through 7. Behold my servant, God speaking about the one who would come, fulfill his promises, make things right. I will give you as a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison who sit in darkness. For Jesus to say, I'm the light of the world, and then to heal a blind man is to say, I'm the Christ. After the healing, there's much talk among the, uh, uh, among the people, the man, his friends, his family, certain the Pharisees. Jesus did this on the Sabbath. And at the end, Jesus cuts to the chase. For judgment, I came into the world that those who do not see me may see, and those who see may become blind. Our problem is that we love the darkness. John says in 3.19, the light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. Light exposes darkness and we're full of it. I went to college downtown Chicago, met my wife there, and it was strongly encouraged, shamed for a woman to walk alone off campus downtown uh, after dark, especially after 10. Why? Men rape women in the dark. That's why. So you walk with several at a time, or you make sure you have a guy to walk around with you. My buddy's, ta- my buddy's dad helped revolutionize the public safety world, wrote a book, uh, Crime Prevention by Environmental Design. Want to prevent crime on your property, on, uh, at your facility? Light up the parking lot. The criminals won't hurt people there, steal things there, damage things there. We do things in the dark. Build your building in such a way that it looks like everything's being watched and everything can be seen. Video cameras, whether they work or not, all of that helps prevent crime. We do the things that we should not in the dark. It's like the goblin that lives under the basement stairs and did at least my home in Toledo until I was three. No one, ever, no one else ever saw him. It was dark down there, and I projected into that darkness a monster. Monsters are in the dark. We've come hardwired getting this, don't we? We're scared of the dark, but the Bible says that spiritually speaking, we are from the dark side. God comes down as the long-promised Christ, the light of the world. He says he is. He goes to the cross. And what happens? The sky turns dark. They stick him in a tomb, roll the stone over the, the hole, He's in a dark tomb for three days, but the darkness does not overcome him. He rolls that stone away and bursts forth in what? Glorious light, we sang three days later. So you may have many reasons why you have not come to Jesus. Whatever they are, Jesus says, he knows them. He knows why you haven't come to him. It's because you love the darkness and hate the light. And maybe you can't even begin to admit that you're the problem. And that stubbornness is part of your own darkness. 
that Jesus comes to you with a warm welcome to come in to the light, to believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. That is a free offer. It is a gracious thing that he came and suffered to provide. We sang this morning, out of my bondage, sorrow, and night, Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Into thy freedom, gladness, and light, Jesus, I come to thee. Out of my sickness, into thy health. Out of my wanting, into thy wealth. Out of my sin, and into thyself, Jesus, I come to, lead to thee. Coming to the light is what saving faith does. And with life in his name, Christ is brighter to our souls than anything we ever did or would do in the dark. And that, my friends, is eternal life. And if you're a son of light, remember that Paul said, remember that you were of darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So, here's a command, walk as children in the light. As Jesus Christ was sent as a light of the world, Christ sends us as the light of the world, a city on a hill, that the world may see our bright works and come out of their bondage and sorrow and night and glorify our Father who's in heaven. And when we walk in the light and proclaim this light, God gets all the glory. As he gets the glory for speaking light into existence, he gets the glory for speaking light and life into existence in our hearts. It's God who said, let light shine out of darkness. And that light is shown in our hearts to get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I pray that God does this for you. He must. So to believe in Christ is to come to the true light. Well, it's also to eat the bread of life. Eating should be a fairly universally understandable picture. I think I get it. In John 6, we have a truly embarrassing part of this gospel. I mean seriously. And you wouldn't think so, but it is. Jesus performs a great and familiar miracle of feeding 5,000 men, Include add to that women, children, with five loaves and five, five loaves of barley and two fish, and there's a bunch left over, how does the crowd respond to this miraculous feeding? Well, they follow him, obviously. He just multiplied food to feed a huge crowd. That's awesome. But why do they follow him? Jesus says, why? You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. He knows what's in man. Now, this is a crowd of fairly normal people. Let's just put most of us in that crowd. The Bible says that normal people who see Jesus feed 5,000 people from five loaves and two fish follow him, not to see another sign, not to get to know him and figure out who he is, but to get their fill. Jesus is their vending machine, their great chef, their heavenly crock pot. That's what they think their need is. And yes, we need food, but more than that, we need the bread of life. No doubt we would come to Jesus for many things beside him too. And Jesus puts us in our place. He says, I am the bread of life in 635. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Our problem is that we'd rather have a full stomach than God. We're, we like created things more than the creator. We'd rather check Facebook than open the scriptures and hear from God. A hundred times a day, we might make that call. We like knowing what other people have to say more than what God has to say. We might skip being with his people on a Sunday if it meant that we could watch our game, our team was on. Not being legalistic here, just trying to point out this is about where our heart is at, what our heart wants, what our heart knows it needs, what we think our problem really is. This is in all of us. If we had to pick, confess our anger to our spouse, or lose Christ, we just might stay alone in our office, or the garage, or out with our friends. It's in all of us. God the Son comes down as the long-promised Christ, the true bread. And when he does, he fulfills this verse. Listen to this, Isaiah 55, 1 through 2. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come and buy and eat, Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? He's not talking about making dumb decisions with money. He's talking about making dumb decisions with eternity. Notice how Jesus picks this language up in John 6, 27. Do not labor 
for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Then he said to them, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. Jesus is fulfilling the promise that God made through the prophet Isaiah. Notice Jesus' fulfillment when he comes is of specific prophecies, but it's also of prophetic patterns that God built in so that we would expect certain things. And Jesus comes fulfilling those expectations. He satisfies. He comes and fills. He says in verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. A veiled reference to his coming death. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Eating Christ, feasting our souls out on him, is what saving faith does. With life in his name, Christ is better to us than food. And that, my friends, is eternal life. Are you caught in a pattern of sin? Are you a human being? I've heard the expression, I'm so hungry, I could eat this chair. I could eat this paper. I could eat this pulpit. Maybe you haven't heard the last one. It, no one's ever said it before. Perhaps all kinds of things that are terrible for us taste good. Perhaps especially when we are malnourished. Well, that's what explains why our hearts are so satisfied with things that don't satisfy. Unsatisfying, fleeting pleasures. We're born with souls hungry for and happy to eat anything because of sin. And because of sin, we love most what is worst for us, what hurts other people. And maybe we can't see it or feel it in the moment, but it's storing up wrath for us. If you've ever eaten, if you've never eaten the true bread of life, come and eat. That is, believe in Jesus. If you are a Christian, keep feeding. Fill yourself with him. Starve your appetite for that next image, that next gossip, that next hateful word, that next outburst by filling yourself with Christ, with his words, with his works, with his work. And if you do desire him but feel defeated now with your sin, remember what Jesus said, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. These refrains showing God's sovereign work to draw us to himself are throughout this book. And when Christ is sent as the bread of life, so we are sent with baskets, as it were, that never run out of bread to share with the world. It's not that we cut what we've got in half and split it up. God is miraculously multiplying satisfaction that he provides in the hearts of people everywhere through the gospel. So to believe in Christ is to eat the true bread. Well, it's also to listen to the good shepherd. This is another image we get in this book. In John 10, starting in verse 8, here's what Jesus says. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but sheep did not listen to them. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd does not know, does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches and scatters them. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The Jews were perplexed by this. They were listening. They said, he's insane. He's got a demon. Others said, there's no way he's got a demon, but I have no idea what he's talking about, and I know he's not the Christ. What's the context here? The immediate context, Jesus just healed a blind man, and the Pharisees are throwing a fit. Man's own family are afraid to speak about it for fear of being put out of the synagogue. The religious leaders have said, you will be put out of the synagogue if you say that Jesus is the Christ. The formerly blind man, blind man has confessed Jesus is the Christ, and he has, this, the text says, been cast out. These shepherds, religious leaders, are resisting God and his authority, his revelation. Reading that is supposed to sound a whole lot like what's been going on for a long time among the people of Israel. When they cast out the blind men and Jesus starts talking about shepherds, this dot should be connecting. Ezekiel 34, God speaks harshly about Israel's shepherds. Listen now, he speaks about them and to listen to what he says he will do. 
Ezekiel 34, 8. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep but shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. I am against the shepherds and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths and they will not be food for them. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I myself will be their shepherd of the sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. Key words, I myself. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And he's talking about us. Our problem is that we are morally stupid people. We rejected our shepherd back in the garden, and ever since we've been running headlong into danger with a smile, or at least with confidence that we know where we're going. And every human shepherd God puts in place gives them all the opportunity to flourish, and they make a mess of it, even eat the sheep. We're self-destructive. And God the Son comes down as the promised Christ, and what does he say? He says, I am the good shepherd. And when he does, he calls to mind even another passage a little later in Ezekiel 37, 24, where God says, my servant David shall be a king over them. Here's a specific promise. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall walk in his rules. Listen to what John said in John 10, 16. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. The former shepherds ate the sheep. Jesus lays down his life for them. Listening to the good shepherd is what saving faith does. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this. Faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that a man could stake his life on it a thousand times. The same faith we place in Christ to save us from sin is the same faith We exercise to believe every word he says. With life in his name, we're safe from every harm, have want of nothing, for his voice leads us to still waters and meets our every need. And that, my friends, is eternal life. The world says that our God is a jerk, that he's a killjoy. And it has its own shepherds to offer us. There are many with different kinds of voices saying different kinds of things. These are not all in the same category. Oprah, Lady Gaga, name the band, name the movie star, your favorite novelist, your qualified, well-published, respected academic in your field is a shepherd. Political leaders are shepherds. The more power concentrated in a single man when it comes to political leaders, the more dangerous they can be. That's why things are set up here wisely the way they are. Maybe your shepherd is Cosmo or whatever the next possible, uh, whatever the next movie is. You always get it. Dwight Schrute. No, not Dwight Schrute. Some of the most dangerous voices are more subtle. They blend in with everything else because everyone's drinking their Kool-Aid. It's conventional wisdom. The assumed sexual morality of our day does not have a poster boy. It's all over the place. It's the air we breathe. And you don't feel like a follower or a sheep until you see that you can map out belief structures and moral sensibilities by geography. What is it? That everyone who believed in a form of Hinduism moved to India? No. We're born following. We're sheep. We follow shepherds. And really, there are only two voices out there. There's the voice of God in his word, and there's the voice of the serpent, serpent, however pronounced in everything else. There's the voice of Christ and the voice of Adam, the old man and the new man. But believing in Jesus is believing everything God has said and everything that Christ has said is good. He may lead us into the valley of the shadow of death and even into death itself, but he is always leading us to greener pastures, pastures and will do so for all eternity. Well, just as Jesus sent a shepherd of the sheep, so we are sent to show the world how good our shepherd is by listening to him and following him and gathering his sheep for every tribe and tongue and nation. To believe in Christ is to listen to the good shepherd. And it's also to abide in the true vine, another image that Jesus gives us in John 15, where we read this. 
Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father the vine dresser. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branch, branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now he talks about the kind of fruit this vine bears. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. And now another veiled reference to his coming death. In 1513, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So Jesus is the true vine. When we abide in him, we bear the fruit of love and so prove to be his disciples. Now listen to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. Talk about God here. Talk about his vineyard, Israel. Let me sing for my beloved my song concerning his vineyard. My beloved is a vineyard on a fertile hill. He's talking about himself. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and he hewed out a wine vet in it and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled down. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Our problem is that all of humanity is severed from the life of God. God calls out a people, gives them every opportunity for flourishing, and they still bear wild grapes. This is a picture, a picture of the disease of sin. So what are you abiding in? Where does your time and heart and mind go when they free up? Are you abiding in the TV? Are you abiding in the fridge? Are you abiding in that project in the garage? Are you abiding in work? Work is good and important, but we can't abide in it. If it is not Christ, it won't produce the fruit of love. Loving it will mean it takes from others and from you in God's glory. Abiding in Christ always overflows in love to others because when his joy is complete in us, we overflow in love to others. God the Son comes down as the long-promised Christ, the true vine with life in himself. He's the true and faithful Israelite, long-promised, the remnant. United to him by faith, we are as well God's people. We do not need a better life. We need life itself, and we need life him self. This is our real problem and this is our real solution. Jesus suffers the vine death we deserve. In his own words, he lays down his life for his friends and since he took our thrashing, we can abide in him and bear the fruit of love, which we could never bear otherwise. When love happens in your heart and among the membership of our church, it is a miracle and an evidence of God's grace. And just as Jesus was sent as the true vine, so we bear the fruit of love in a loveless place, showing the world where the source of life is. Christian, your assurance is not in a decision or a profession in the past, but in your continual abiding now. Another reason why this gospel is not just for those who haven't heard of Christ, but for all of us. My friends, abide in Christ and live. Last two points. Believing in Christ is to behold the Lamb of God It is clear where things have been going in this gospel all along. In chapter 1, Jesus is presented as the eternal word. But then John the Baptist comes, and when he sees Jesus, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This could have been our second point. It's the first title that John gives to Jesus when Jesus shows up. And for the rest of the book, John keeps talking about this thing called the hour. You can't miss it. Seven times in the first half of the book, the hour is coming, but it's not yet here. Six times in the second half, my hour has come. He is in control of history. God's in control of history. Half the book, a book that starts in eternity past, is about the days and events immediately surrounding the crucifixion of Christ. So this is not another one of seven points we might make. They've all been moving in this direction, headlong. Remember, Christ came as the word and revealed God to us, but if he does not tear down the temple of his body and rebuild it, 
we're still under wrath. We may come as the true light. He may come as the true light. But if he does not enter the dark tomb and come out overcoming death, then the light only exposes our sin for judgment. Christ may come as the bread of life, but unless his body is broken, we cannot eat. His blood spilled, we cannot drink. He may come as the good shepherd, but if he does not lay down his life for his sheep, we still die. And he may come as the true vine, but if he does not lay down his life for his friends, if he does not take the thrashing of the wild grapes that we deserved, we cannot live and bear fruit. That thrashing is left to us. It's for us. We cannot just know the facts of Jesus' death. We need its meaning, and the title Lamb of God does it for us. You see, God built into the structure graciously. Old Testament's long, isn't it? But graciously, he built into his story pictures and patterns to teach, about, teach us about who this would come and be the Lamb of God. In the Exodus, God promised he would deliver his people from Egyptian slavery, so he judges the Egyptians, and the only way that Israel gets out of judgment, which they deserve as well as sinners, is by killing a lamb at God's instruction and marking their doorpost with its blood, and the angel of death passes over their homes. Passed over because of the blood of a lamb. Through the sacrificial system that we see all through the Old Testament, Leviticus, maybe a boring book, maybe not. Pointing to Jesus, we see a constant reminder, sacrifice after sacrifice, that sin requires death. Sin requires death. All along, we're learning about our problem. Our problem is that we deserve to die. We're under God's wrath. In Isaiah 53, 3 through 7, God's promises get fairly specific as to who this promised one, what he would accomplish in the meaning of his death. It says, this one, Isaiah 53, 3, was despised and rejected by men, and we esteemed him not. He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Notice those personal pronouns. We despised our iniquities. My my Lord, what love is this that pays so dearly that I, the guilty one, may go free amazing love. Oh, what sacrifice. The Son of God given for me. My debt he pays. My death he dies that I might live. What love is this? This is the love of God for his enemies, for you and for me. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God the Son comes, the long-promised Christ, and sheds his blood for us, the way a helpful book on the history of Christianity begins this way, I haven't forgotten it. Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. When John says, behold, he doesn't mean look. He means believe, marvel, bow, accept, receive. Beholding the Lamb is what saving faith does. When we do, we stand before God with no guilt, and that is eternal life. And as he was sent as, into the world as a lamb who takes away sins, so we're sent proclaiming the lamb who takes away sins. And one day, men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation will cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So we behold Christ, the risen lamb. Sorry. We behold Christ, the lamb of God. Finally, we follow the risen and returning came. He cannot defeat death if he does not die, and he does not defeat death if he is not raised. And if he is not raised, as Paul says, we're to be pitied most of all, the whole thing's a sham. What kind of wasted time have we spent every Sunday with all of our service in the church, people all over the world? He lays down his life and he takes it back up, tears down the temple of his body, builds it back up in three days. The cross is no happy ending if there's no resurrection to follow. The resurrection is not an afterthought to the cross. It is the goal of the cross, and it is part of the good news. In chapter 12, as John turns to his second half of the book leading up to the cross, Jesus rides into, uh, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the crowd took branches, we read in chapter 12, 13, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying what? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. 
He's the promised king. And ironically, the soldiers mock him and perhaps the crowd when they say, when they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe and came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. They spoke better than they knew. Jesus died a real death, was taken down, his lifeless body put in a tomb where it was dark and began to decay. And bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on you and on me if our faith and our hope is in him. And as the risen Lord were to follow him, Jesus said, follow six times in the whole book. Every time he said, me afterwards. We see it in the first chapter and twice in the last chapter of the book of John. He says, follow me when he meets his disciples. Now, don't let the word follow fall lightly on your ears. You can follow 5,000 people on Twitter and never check into your account again. That means follow him in what he came to do in accomplishing his mission. We follow our king as those who have been sent by him. He says in John 20, 21, as the father sent me, even so I am sending you. We follow him with the spirit he sent with us. In John 20, 22, he says, the very next verse, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. This is what our king gives to us. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all. And he's helping John write this book. He's inspiring it. We follow our king trusting his sovereignty in human hearts. Remember that thread that we find all the way through this book. John 6, 37 is one of these occasions. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. You come to Christ, it's real, he'll never cast you out. And everyone that the Father draws to him comes. Gives us confidence in our mission. We follow our king remembering that his is not of this world. His kingdom is not of this world. And we follow him looking for his return. John 14, 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And that, my friends, is eternal life.